<laughs> That's all right. I uh, today uh, is a uh, it's a message that I. Uh, It's, it's a message that I haven't had difficulty in preparing, but I have difficulty in giving because there is so much that's in this. We're moving and we're going to Jonah chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 17. Uh, There's some things that you hear in Jonah, uh, you know, chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, that's, uh, you know, that's really difficult. So, to get this, we have to understand what an idol is. So, I went to... I went to the internet to get a definition for what an idol is. The internet says that it's an object of extreme devotion. Webster's Dictionary tells us that idols or idolatry okay, is the worship of idols or accept or reverence for someone or something. An idol is anything that represents or replaces the one and true God. An idol is something or someone we give the ability to do what the one and true God can do. Provide for us. Protect us. And to save us. So whenever we look at this and we see what an idol is. I want us to think back to our childhood. Because as we were being raised up or taught in our lives. We were being taught idolatry. Now think about it, whenever there was troubles going on in the house, what did you do? You ran and hid. From that point you understood what caused the reaction, what caused the bad things. So then we began to do everything that we could so that the bad things didn't come about. Whenever mom and dad got into a fight because of the alcohol or because of drugs or just simply because mom, was, mom or dad was, was mad. What did we do? We went and hid. Whenever the arguing wasn't going on. We would walk around on eggshells to make sure that we didn't tip the balance to where mom or dad would begin to shout and scream. 
we begin to understand that if I do this, then nothing bad's going to happen. Remember, what's the definition of an idol? Something or someone that we put into the place that the one and true God should be doing. The Shema in Deuteronomy tells us that God is going to protect us and He is going to provide for us. So as children, we are learning to protect ourselves. So we grow up. And we learn to protect ourselves even more. You have the bully. How many of you ever had a bully in your life? If you didn't raise your hand, you must have been the bully. Y'all have heard that one before, right? I had a bully down the street. He was at least six to seven years older than I was. What was my dad's advice to me whenever the bully came and started picking on me? Pick up a rock. Now, I was a baseball player, so he knew that I could hit him with the rock. It only took twice in picking up the rock and hitting him with it that he quit bullying me. So what did that show me? That showed me that I can protect myself if I get something bigger than what they have. So what is society doing today? You come to fight with a knife, I've got a gun. You come to the fight with a gun, I've got two guns. You see where it's going? I can protect myself. We have been teaching ourselves this all of the way. We all have to eat, right? Your mom and dad did their best job that whenever you were growing up that they taught you that you need to provide for yourself. Right? So what do we do to provide for ourselves? We get a job. My dad once told me, he said, son, he said, you can go out and you can get an education and you can do whatever you want to do. Or you can pick up a shovel and you can be the best ditch digger that's, you know, that's ever been around. But it's your choice. You have to go out and provide for yourself. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I, I recall, uh, you know, my dad, you know, he's discussing and he's talking to the family about, uh, you know, possibly buying a fishing boat. And he says, whenever you buy a fishing boat to get something, you have to lose something. To get something, you have to give something up to be able to get it. So do you have the premise? To get what we want, we have to give something up. We are teaching ourselves idolatry. Look at it in the scripture. The Israelites... God has came, He has shown His mighty power, right? You know, they escaped from Egypt. And they go out and they're surrounded. They've got water in front of them. They've got Pharaoh's army coming behind them. And they're scared to death. What's going to happen? 
God comes and he blows the wind and the wind you know, divides the water and they walk across on dry ground. They get over on the other side and they go off to the mountain. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain so that he can get the uh, commandments from God. And he's gone for 40 days. And in those 40 days, they forgot of all the 10 plagues that God, you know, that God had put upon Egypt. They forgot about the God that had spread the water. And what did they do? They went right back to their idols. They built a calf, a golden calf, out of all the gold that was given to them from the Egyptians so that they would leave. Idolatry has been throughout the history. Joshua even talks to them and tells them that you cannot worship God alone. Because you still have the idols that your parents had over on the other side of the Euphrates River. This is back before the flood. We have idols. We all have idols. We all had idols. Before. We accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I, I, I want to apologize for all the pastors that you have ever set underneath that promised you a God that is not available. I want to apologize for the fact that if anyone stood behind the pulpit or anyone that taught you in your class that if you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that your life was going to be grand and that everything was going to be okay from that moment on. I want to apologize because that's nothing more than an idol. Because that's not God. God tells us that if you follow me, it's going to be a struggle. I want to apologize for everyone that ever taught you that all you have to do is be baptized and you're going to go to heaven. See, there's a problem. Last Sunday night, I'm kneeling at the bedside of a young lady that just tried to commit suicide. I pray for her. She looks up at me and she goes, oh, pastor, I was baptized a long time ago. We will find in Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, that the reason why God was here and, and what he was doing was he was smashing every idol that can ever be erected in our lives. But first, we have to realize that we have them. Because any time we allow something to do what God is supposed to do in our lives, we have then made it 
an idol. If you're struggling at home and there's always arguments at home and you're staying at work later so that you don't have the arguments, works became the idol. If your finances are short and you say, okay, I can work overtime to be able to provide for this, you are worshiping work as an idol. I want to apologize for all the preachers and all the churches and all the denominations that are telling you today that all you have to do is come to church on Sunday mornings and everything's going to be okay. I was starting out in my ministry and I was a youth pastor at, over in, in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And I had a young man come to me. He's like, John, I, I don't understand what's, what's wrong. You know, I, I, I did my best to raise my kids in the right way. I'm like, oh, you did, did you? He said, yes. I said, I haven't seen you or your kids at church in the last month. Oh yeah, Pastor, but we have softball. My daughter's on a, on a softball team. So softball is more important than God. Oh no, no, Pastor. He's not that's not. That's not what that's what you're saying. Whenever you take your children to a softball game, instead of bringing them to church, you are telling them that God is in second place. Softball is more important. Softball is accomplishing something that God should accomplish. Now, what about this? How many of you have ever heard this? You know, it's hard for me to come to church on Sundays because, I, you know, I work, uh, you know, six days a week and, and Sunday's my only day to rest. So I come on Sunday mornings, but I don't come on Sunday nights because I need rest. How many of you have heard that? How many of you believe the scripture whenever Jesus says, you know, come to me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? What about Psalms 23, whenever it says that I will lead you into pastures, into calm waters? See, this is that difficult part. Because God is calling us to do something that no one else in this world is doing. He says, stand on my promises. And if God says that I will provide for you and I will protect you, we have to act as if he will do exactly what he says that he will do. If I'm tired and I don't come to church, does that mean Monday morning I'm going to be revived? No. If I come to God and I say, God... 
I'm exhausted today. Will you give me rest? He will give you true rest. If you come to God and you say, God, I'm struggling today. I am weak today. Will you give me your strength? He'll give you his strength. Can I confess something to you? Monday morning, I had a difficult morning. After all, this is the 4th of July week, right? Most of us took a couple of days off, right? I mean, most of us, most of y'all got to take a couple of days off, right? I I wanted to have a day off. I I really did. I wanted to have a day off. I struggled coming into the office. I made it into the office. Struggled. Really did. I came in and I sat down in my seat right over here. Well, wait a minute. I came in and I sat down on the front pew right over here. And I said, God, I said, I need help today. Because I know that I should be studying your word. But I want to be somewhere else. Can you give me strength? I want you to know I accomplished more in that half a day. Because I know that he was with me. He says that I will provide for you and I will protect you. We've got to stop putting things in front of him and saying that they can do it. Said we were going into the scripture for this, right? God's smashing these idols. So how in the world is God smashing these idols? Let's picture this. Let's put ourselves right here with the sailors that's on this vessel. That's headed out to Tarsus. That has a gentleman that's in the belly of the, uh, in the, belly of the, of the ship or in the hole of the ship, or in the bottom of the ship, whatever your translation says, he was underneath, in with the cargo, under the ship. And he was sleeping. And you have these hardened sea guys, these big burly men, that are out here battling this storm that's came because of the one that's down below. Now, these are Gentiles, so they don't know about the one and true God. So what do they do? They begin to call out to their idols. They begin to shout and they begin to scream to whoever it is. I imagine that the captain of this ship had a figurine sculpted out of wood or something That symbolized his God over storms. And I bet you they had that thing out. And they were lifting it up into the wind. And they were shouting to the tops of their lungs. Please hear me. Please save me. I bet you some of those men that was on that ship. Had never prayed to a God before. Because they could handle it on their own. 
I've got this. I'm this mighty sailor. I can take care of this. If I get tossed overboard, that's okay. I'll be able to swim for a little bit. These men begin to cry out. The scripture tells us what? The scripture says that the storm got worse. It got so bad that this gentleman that's downstairs sleeping, that they go and get him. Now, why did they go and get Jonah? They went to get Jonah so that he could pray to his God. Our gods aren't working. The ones that we're screaming out to, the ones that we're praying to, they're not working. Let's go see if his will work. Right? That was their question. Come on out here and let's pray to your God. And they said, who are you and who is your God? Where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? But what does he tell us? What does he tell them? He says, I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the true God. The one that created the heavens and the earth. And then what do you think those burly sailors did? That had been crying out to their gods to no avail. What do you think they did? Huh? Well, they blamed him, but, uh, you know. First of all, what they did was, is they noticed and they recognized his God. As the true God. So then what did they do? They decided that they were going to cast lots. I think I got ahead of myself just a little bit there. I think they cast lots before they asked him who he was. So they want to find out and see who caused all of this ruckus, right? Why is all of this happening to us? So they cast lots. How many of you know about lots? And not lots that you can buy. Casting lots. Do you realize that that was actually a common factor? Or that was something that was commonly done uh, in the uh, Hebrew nation? That the Israelites commonly cast lots? The reason why they cast lots was to take man's decision or man's control out of the situation. So we look at this and we think about this. Uh, you know, now it says that they cast lots, so there was multiple lots. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, the most common of lots would be that you would have two. And one would say, Yah, for Yahweh, and the other one would say, no. So in other words, if it landed on Yah for Yahweh, that means that that was God's will for this to happen. If it was on no, then that meant that it was not His will, so you went another direction. Now, if 
both of them were flipped over to where it didn't say Yah or didn't say no. It was symbolized as saying no. Because it was an agreement that that wasn't what was supposed to happen. So you had a 50-50 chance of it, doing, of it being what God wanted it to be. But there's lots. It's thought that in this particular time and where we were, is that there was a colored stone or there was a stone that had colors on it. And each person had a specific color that correlated with them. And whenever they would cast the lot, they would either say that if it's you, then only your color will show. But if it's someone else, only their color will show. So you see where we are. We don't know how many sailors were on this ship. We don't know how many lots was in this little cup or that was being tossed. All we know is, is that it clearly showed that Jonah was the problem. So you can say that out of all of those colors that could have been, that Jonah's color showed up on every stone. So what does that show us? Jonah has bad luck. No way. What it shows us is, is that God is ultimately in control of everything. And God said, Jonah is the culprit, so I am going to make every one of these lots to show that Jonah is the one that's caused this. There's no question. So let's deal with this in the time frame because I want you to really get a hold of this, okay? Because here we are, they have entered out and the storm has came up and they go and they begin to cry out to their God or to their gods. Nothing happens, the storm gets worse. They go down and they get Jonah. They cast lots to decide on who was the culprit. They find that God is in control of the storm because all of their gods are not taking care of it. They come and God says that I'm in control of this because I'm going to show you exactly who's the issue. Jonah's the issue. And they say, okay. Then they ask Jonah who he is, where is he from, and why is this happening? I kind of thought that was interesting because it says that they knew that Jonah was already running from his God. So whenever they knew that he was already running from his God, and then he says that I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the God that created the heavens and the earth, they get this understanding that Jonah's God is in control of all this that's going on. That none of this is happening by chance. That the one and true God, the one that says that I will provide for you and I will protect you, he is the one that's creating all of this that's going on. Now watch this, watch this, because they asked Jonah, 
what must we do? What does Jonah say? Throw me overboard. What does the sailors do? No, they don't. They start rowing. What? Do you not, do you see this? Jonah, his God, the God that created the heavens and the earth, the one that is in control of all of this, says the only way that this can go about is if you throw me overboard. They're like, no, wait a minute. I think that if we row just a little bit harder, that we'll be able to make it. Let's not laugh, because we tell God the same thing. Hold on, God. (laughs) I'm not ready. I'm not ready to give everything to you just yet. I think I can still handle this. Wait a minute. I just spent 30 minutes to an hour showing you that all of these gods that you have created on this earth, that they cannot take care of you. I'm in control of all of this. Throw Jonah overboard. Everything will be okay. Even Jonah rejected God's opportunity to ask for forgiveness. Jonah had already preached to the Israelites about the mighty works and the mighty power of God. He has seen it firsthand. He refuses to call out to God. Knowing that God is in control. Knowing that all he has to do is to ask for forgiveness and do what God has commanded him to do and then all will be saved. Jonah says, no, throw me overboard. And they work and they roll a little bit harder. There's also something else that's in here because whenever we look at this, we've got to notice their respect for the Hebrew prophet, for Jonah. Because whenever they finally realize that they can't do it, what do they do? They call out to God and they say, God, please don't have his blood to be on our hands. We do not want to be the cause of his death. They throw him overboard. Finally. Finally, they came to an understanding that it's not by my work that any of this happens. It's not by my works that I make it on this world. It's not by any of the things that I do that I can make it, that I can survive. It's not by working harder. We always need to make sure that we work smarter. And the smartest thing for us to ever do is to turn everything over to the one true God. To stop holding on to the idols that we have placed in our lives. We've got to turn them loose.
we see in this picture. We see the revelation that these men have. They fought. They struggled. They called out to their gods. Their gods had no, no prevail or no avail or no change to the storm. They worked a little bit harder and they tried to row even whenever they knew that the one and true God, the one that created the heavens and the earth, the one that created you and me, the one that sustains all things, that he's the one that's in charge of all of this. He's the one that's in charge of life. He's the giver of life. He's the provider of life. He's the protector of life. He's the one that sustains all things. He's the one that we need to hold on to. He's the one that we need to go to. We see this realization in their lives. And whenever we see the realization that's in their lives, we get this understanding that there has to be a blood offering. There has to be blood shed for our sins. Praise the Lord that Jesus Christ has already done that. God is the only solution to every problem that we will ever have in our lives. Whenever we finally come to this realization as far as where we are and we quit struggling, and we turn to God. We must repent. We've got to repent from the sins that's in our lives. We've got to repent and turn from all the gods that we've been holding on to. We've got to get rid of them. To allow God to truly work in our lives. But see, that's where we deal with, where we struggle with all of this is, is because we've been taught all of our lives to hold on to these. I believe that there are idols that we have built in our lives from our childhood that we have hidden away that we don't even remember are still there. There are issues that we struggle with, that they're still there. Those are the idols from long ago that we've hidden. Now, I don't want to be this preacher or this pastor that's going to paint a rosy picture for you. Because one of the things that we see is that to have true conversion, to honestly, truly see and to realize that we are lost and we are sinners, and to understand that God is the only way and that we have to repent from our sins, 
True conversion does not leave tomorrow. True conversion is not free. It will cost you something. What is it going to cost you? There's a whole lot of things that it can cost you. It can cost your friends. It can cost you to lose your favorite idol. It will cause pain in your life. But what do you gain? Because see, that's really the thing. See, because... Yes, it's a sacrifice. Yes, we lose something. But we get something that's a whole lot better than what we would ever lose here on this earth. Because if you lose your favorite idol, that means that you get a God that's actually going to do what He says He's going to do. That whenever He says that I will provide for you, He's going to provide for you. It might not look like what you want it to look like, but He'll provide for you. There's been many a times that I had the taste in my mouth for a good steak and it wound up being ramen noodles with a little bit of beef broth. But he provided for me. I had a meal. He will provide for us and he will protect us. You know, I got to read this for you. Verse 16, I'm going to read this one out of my uh, big study Bible, the, uh, you know, the NASB. So now all of you people that went out and got the uh, NLTs, don't worry, I still, I still preach from that. But this has a word in here that I want you to get. Verse 16, it says, Then the man feared the Lord greatly. Now when was this? This is after... They threw Jonah overboard. They threw Jonah overboard, and what happened? Everything calmed down. They feared him greatly. Then they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made a vow. They offered a sacrifice to him, and they made a vow. What's your sacrifice? What's yours? What vow are you going to make to God? True conversion. Authentic conversion. It says that you will have to sacrifice something, but then you will have to do something for the rest of your life. And that is follow Him. Jesus tells us. He says to be a true disciple. You follow me. And if you follow me. Then you're truly set free. Until we truly follow Him. 
and we truly follow the words in the scripture and follow the commands that he has for us until we truly follow him we are still under the bondage of sin now that doesn't mean that we're not set free from it but it still has a hold on us there's still this pull that's pulling us in another direction To truly be set free, we have to follow His commands. And see, that takes us back to some of those things that we were talking about. See, if we have true conversion, there's a sacrifice in our lives. We give up something. We give up a lot of things. We give up control. We give up self. Give up drugs. Give up alcohol. Whatever it would be. And we vow to live a life following Jesus Christ. Doing the works and doing what He calls us and what He wants us to do. That means... That on Sunday mornings, that we come to church. Not because we have to, but because we get to. That means that on Sunday nights, that we come back to church. Not because we have to, because we get to. We have the opportunity, the privilege, To be able to come back into his house and to worship and to praise him and to thank him for all the things that he's done for us and all the blessings that he's given to us and for the salvation that his son, Jesus Christ, has made available to us. Now, pastor, the only other service that's left is Wednesday. Are you going to tell me that I need to be here on Wednesday? Yeah. Now, let me take a step back and, uh, you know, all the other pastors or all the other people that are listening to this on the internet that don't go to this church, please do not take offense to this. All these other churches and stuff that says that it is man-made that we go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. I would ask you to go into Acts whenever Acts says that they met Daily with other believers. That means every single day in the whenever the church was birthed, that every single day they were at someone else's house worshiping and praising God. And we can't do it three days a week. That should be shame on us. We should not allow this to go. We should not be telling our people that you can survive if you come to church on Sunday mornings. I don't want my people just to survive. I want them to thrive. And for you to thrive, you have to be in the presence of God Almighty. Because He is the only one that is strong enough to take care of all the other things that's in this world. 
And if we do not stand with him and for him, dare I say it, we're standing against him. There is not a fence that you can straddle. You're either a Christian or you're not. That takes me to what's really becoming my favorite verse. Uh, you know, whenever the passage of Scripture says that there's, there's no male or female, there's no uh, you know, saved or lost, there's no Greek or Gentile, there's only, oh, there's, I'm sorry. Let me go back a little bit. Okay, it says that there's no male or female. It says there's no Greek or Gentile. It says there's no slave and there's no free. There's only lost or saved. He doesn't look at what gender you are. He doesn't look at what color you are. He doesn't look at where you're living at or anything like that. All he looks at is, do you believe in me as your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And if you don't, then he sees you as lost. You're either a child of mine or you're not. You're not on the fence. I might be today, but tomorrow I most probably won't be. God smashed every one of the idols of every sailor that was on that boat. He said, I'm the one. I'm the only one. You follow me or you follow no one. Because they're nothing. They're absolutely, positively nothing. This morning as Robbie comes up and begins to play. See, we have to ask this question, you know, because there's things about this is that there's some people that will confess that they've been converted, that they don't live a converted life. Some people live a life that looks like conversion, but they're not. This morning... God wants to smash every idol that you have in your life. Everything that you put in front of Him, everything that you say can do something that He is supposed to do for us, as in providing for us and protecting us. Any of those things that we place there, that we say that they can do it, I, I don't care if we take it and we shine it up and we place it in front of God and we say, look what I'm doing, God. He says, but you're not allowing me to do it. And until you allow me to do it, that's an idol. Some of us have idols from our childhood that's buried way deep back there that we might not even realize is there. But there will come a struggle in our lives that it will pop up. And we'll grab a hold to it. God says, those idols, I've smashed those too. You can't work. You cannot do anything for salvation. You cannot do anything to be rescued from this lost and dying world that you're in. Except truly believe in me. And allow me to be the only God in your life. The only God.
So let's stand this morning. Let's bow our heads. Let's allow God to search our hearts. If there is any idol that we have, allow Him to smash it. Allow Him to destroy it, to take it out of your life. If there hasn't been true conversion in your life, if there hasn't been a sacrifice and a vow to where you were truly following God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, this morning is that morning. He has already smashed the idols. He has proven that they're useless. The altar is open. If there's any idols in your life, bring them to Him. My 
provides for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, dear Lord, for this day. Uh, you know, God, as we look at Jonah's life and we look at this part, dear Lord, of the sailors and how you smashed every God because you are the true and the only God. God, we need you. We need you in our lives. We need you to be in control of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.